invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9 will be our text this morning. And by the help of the Lord, over the next two Lord's Days, I aim to consider the glorious doctrine of the incarnation of the Son of God. Verses 6 and 7 of this chapter are very familiar. For unto us a son is born, unto us a son is, or a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the increase of his government and peace. There shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Those verses are very, very familiar. But the wonderful truths of these verses are amplified when we consider them in light of the context of the preceding five verses. So Lord willing, we will exposit the entirety of this section from Isaiah, not just verses 6 and 7. And so this morning will be part one of a two-part message entitled, God Incarnate. However, before I can rush to this text, I must first begin with somewhat of a lengthy apologetic and disclaimer. As I was considering and then preparing these messages, I wrestled in my own mind and in my own conscience. And in order to preach to you with my conscience clear before God, I believe I need to share with you the burden of my own heart concerning this subject of the doctrine of the Incarnation. The time of the year when the whole world practically is engaged in the wholesale celebration of the holiday called Christmas is personally very difficult for me. Not only personally, but also pastorally. Because I know that I have convictions about this holiday that are very different from the contemporary sentiments of the modern church. However, I also know that there are gray areas surrounding this issue And I don't want to preach my personal convictions as if they were holy writ. I don't want to go beyond what the Bible clearly and explicitly commands. And I don't want to bind your conscience with anything but the word of God. And so I would ask you to bear with me as I share just a little bit of a a disclaimer, as it were, just so you understand very clearly where I am coming from. Nevertheless... As I attempt to accommodate myself pastorally to the differing views in the church, I cannot violate my own conscience. For whatever is not of faith is sin. That's what the Bible says. So my struggle is determining where the line is between biblical precept and personal conviction. You have to do that on every issue. You have to figure out where's the line between Personal conviction and biblical precept. Personal convictions are fine for you to have, but they're very wrong for you to impose on other people. And I confess to you that I don't know where to draw the line at all times, especially on this particular issue. Because there are certain aspects of this particular issue that really bother my conscience very much. But I know that there are other wonderful and godly people that don't share in those same concerns. And so I pray and I search the scriptures to find a position that, that is biblical and that is charitable. 
And if I say something that you think is overstepping, well, it may very well be. (laughs) But I want to assure you that my intention is not to offend nor to impose anything upon you other than what God has taught in the Bible. And I want to accommodate myself and my ministering to you as much as I can. I really do. I promise you, I really do. Well, what does this have to do with Christmas? One of the troubling things about Christmas and other religious holidays, such as Easter, is that it seems that the contemporary church forms their position on these days exclusively based on the culture and not at all on the Word of God. We don't even think to ask, what does the Bible say about this? We just say, well, everyone is celebrating Christmas, therefore it must be fine. Tis the reason, right? It must be fine. But you know that at this church, the Bible is our ultimate authority for all things. And we want to examine everything in light of the scriptures. And I trust that this is not only true for our church, but this is true for each of you personally. I trust that you won't make decisions based on culture or emotions or sentimental memories. And if that means swimming in a direction that diametrically opposes the culture... We will do it with love and compassion, but so help us God, we will swim in that direction. So each of you must decide what you and your family will do with days like Christmas and Easter. It's a personal decision that you're going to have to make. And all I'm asking you is that whatever decision you make, you do so because you are convinced that the Bible teaches it and not because of family tradition and cultural influence. Uh, Let me say right off the bat, I will not, in this sermon or next Lord's Day sermon, try to tell you how you should observe Christmas in your family. I will not do that. But I will exhort you to ask the questions that few contemporary Christians are asking. Let me suggest just three of them for your consideration. Number one, I believe you need to ask this question. What does the Bible say about Christmas and the proper worship of God? Well, if you answer this question honestly, you will find... That nowhere in all of Scripture do we have the slightest command to observe any particular day as the birthday of our Lord. Nor do we see an example of any New Testament church observing such a day. In fact, God doesn't even tell us when this day is. We have no historical reason to believe with any certainty that Jesus was born on December 25th. Therefore, We must admit that Christmas is an extra-biblical day. Notice I said extra-biblical, not unbiblical. There's a huge difference between the two. Uh, I'm not telling you that it's unbiblical, but it is extra-biblical for the simple reason it's not in the Bible. (laughs) So it must have come from some other source than the Word of God. (laughs) Well, this doesn't necessarily lead you to a conclusion about the legitimacy of Christmas because our society has plenty of wonderful days that are nowhere mentioned in the Bible. Mother's Day, Father's Day, Thanksgiving, and we all celebrate those, I celebrate those, and we see no issue with celebrating them. So just the simple fact that it's not mentioned in the Bible is not good enough. You need to ask a couple more questions. You need to ask this question. What are the historical origins of Christmas? If it didn't come from the Bible, where did it come from? Well, this is a very tricky question uh, with a very difficult answer. And I have heard proponents of both sides shout very loudly their, their 
answer to this question with great certainty, and I just don't believe we can have that kind of certainty. But here's what we do know as far as the origins of Christmas go. Number one, we know that no Christian celebrated Christmas for the first three centuries of the church. In fact, they didn't have such a day. If you read the church fathers in the first, second, and third century, there was no known custom to celebrate any day as the birthday of our Lord. Secondly, we know that in the fourth century, the Roman Catholic Church instituted a special mass, which is, of course, their idolatrous and blasphemous religious institution where they believe that the bread and the wine are turned physically into and transubstantiated into the body and blood of the Lord, and they re-crucify him and re-sacrifice him every time the Mass is observed. And they instituted a special Mass to be observed at the same time as the winter solstice feast, which occurred somewhere around December 25th. And they instituted this Mass to commemorate the birth of Christ, and they called it the Christ Mass. And that's where we get the term Christmas. If you look at the word Christmas, you have the word Christ, then you have M-A-S. Well, there was a day in which that was two words. It was Christ Mass with two S's at the end, the Christ Mass. That's where we get the word Christmas from. That's whether you celebrate it or don't, that's just an undeniable historical fact. Well, am I saying that Christian or that Christmas is a, a pagan holiday with pagan origins and you're participating in heathen idolatry if you se- celebrate it? Well, I think that's jumping a bridge too far that I don't want to jump with you. Again, I'm simply just saying that it's not as black and white as we wish. You can have legitimate conversations about the legitimacy of taking a holiday that began, for instance, with the Roman Catholic Mass, and now, 2,000 years later, well, really more like 1,400 years later, now we have a different meaning behind it, and we we don't observe the Mass, and so therefore... In your conscience, you are clear to celebrate it in the same way that, for instance, a Corinthian was able to eat meat that was first offered to idols, but now he knows that that idolatry uh, doesn't carry over to him, and so he eats the meat. But you need to ask that question. What are the origins of Christmas? Thirdly, the last question I'm going to suggest for your consideration, how did the church, and when I say the church, I mean the true church, not the Roman Catholic Church, How did the church arrive on the position that it predominantly holds today? You know, it might surprise you to find out that there was a time when the celebration of Christmas was not at all common outside of the Roman Catholic Church. The Reformers, the Puritans, and the early particular Baptists were squarely united in their view of not celebrating Christmas or any other holidays instituted by the Roman Catholic Church. And I know for some of you that fact alone is quite a shock. What? A Christian who didn't celebrate Christmas? Or even even greater of a shock, what? The particular Baptist with whom we find our spiritual ancestors? You mean to tell me that they didn't celebrate Christmas? They didn't gather around the tree on Christmas Eve and exchange gifts with one another and go caroling and make cookies and drink hot chocolate? No, they they didn't. Not at all. (laughs) These things are... uh, almost uniquely American innovations. However, there was a day when as a confessional Baptist, it was assumed that you did not observe Roman Catholic holy days. But now, if you're a confessional Baptist and you don't celebrate Christmas, people look at you like you have three heads. 
So how did we get here? Well, I can't give you a definite answer. It would be too easy to just say, well, it's an area where the church is apostatized. I don't believe it's as easy as that. that you see why I'm struggling? Because if it was so cut and dry, I, I could preach it with great boldness and great authority and not worry about the fact that there's just a lot of gray areas surrounding this day. Well, to be totally transparent, I believe I owe it to you to share with you where I'm at on this issue. And after wrestling for years with these scriptures and these questions, our family has come to a position where we abstain from most all observances of the Christ Mass of Christmas. We recognize that there are wonderful and godly Christians who have come to a very different conclusion on this subject, and we do not want to cause needless contention in the body of Christ. That's the whole point of this disclaimer. Because I don't want to see any contention in the body of Christ. I will say uh, that I don't believe I am departing from our Reformed and particular Baptist tradition. I believe that the Reformed tradition has left me, and I'm hopelessly stuck in 1750 London. (laughs) That's where I'm at personally. However, it's not that simple for me. Because as pastor of this assembly, I also have to wrestle through these issues on a church level. Nearly a year ago, I preached a sermon at this church entitled Holy Days and Corporate Worship, where I dealt exclusively with this issue on a church level. And that sermon is still on our sermon audio. It's still available, and I still stand by it. So if you want to go a little bit deeper with with our observance of Christmas in corporate worship, I would recommend that to you. Um, But I've given you my personal position. I want want to be very clear about where this church stands on this issue of Christmas. We believe that what members do in their own families is between them and God and His Word. We are committed uh, to, to... maintaining the liberty of conscience for each individual of this church. If you choose to have a tree, if you choose not to have a tree, if you choose to have a gift-giving ceremony, if you choose not to do that, if you choose to have decorations, if you choose not to have decorations, uh, this does not affect your, your membership at this church in any way, shape, or form, and I will be the first to very staunchly fight against any spirit of pride or arrogance that, that will say, I am better or I am worse because of how I choose to conduct my home and my family in these matters. So you don't have to worry. You know, if, I, if I come over to your, uh, to your house for a fellowship, or, or, and by, by the way, I'm not the only one in this church that holds to this position. I, I can guarantee you that. Uh, I, if, if, you know, if we're over at your house for a fellowship in December and there's a Christmas tree in the corner, you, we will not pronounce anathema maranatha upon you. Praise God. <laughs> And we trust, and here's the flip side, and we trust that when you come to our house and you don't see the tree, you don't say, what's wrong with you? I thought you were a Christian. Why aren't you celebrating Christmas? So that's what we won't do. What will we do? Well, when it comes to the corporate worship of the church, we will continue to follow the regulative principle. We will not incorporate things into the worship of the church that are not explicitly commanded in Scripture. We will not have a skit We will not have a cantata. We will not uh, forbid the preaching of the word so we can have story time with the pastor as he sits in a rocking chair dressed in a red suit. We will not do that here. And we will not forsake the assembling of ourselves together on the Lord's day. 
even if that Lord's Day falls on the 25th of December. <coughs> we will continue to do only those things which are biblically prescribed elements of worship. So, you know my personal conviction. You know my conviction as a pastor. You might ask me this question. Well, why preach on the incarnation at all? Why not just ignore the day altogether? Why not just preach straight through 1 Corinthians as I've been doing? Why take this detour to preach on the incarnation? Well, number one, because I love and cherish and affirm the doctrine of the incarnation as a fundamental truth to Christianity. You cannot be a Christian if you deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's a glorious and wonderful truth that all of us should praise God for. Secondly, because it's never wrong to preach on the Incarnation, just like it's never wrong to preach on any truth found in the Bible. Thirdly, because we are all compelled to think about it in December whether we want to or not. (laughs) I know as a pastor, your minds are already upon the doctrine of the Incarnation. You're already thinking about... Uh, the birth of Christ. You, you, it's on the radio. It's on TV. It's, a, it's in the newspaper. If you are old like me and still read a newspaper. It's everywhere. And because it's everywhere, it, it would perhaps cause more confusion if we pretended that it wasn't. And fourthly, because this is a minority position, I believe it would cause more contention to just completely ignore December 25th or to take a very bold anti uh, December 25th position. I, I have friends who are ministers in Reformed churches who will go out of their way to deal with the Incarnation in the month of December. Uh, I understand why that is. I'm just not there. Uh, I'm not where the Puritans were on this subject either. Did you know that when the Massachusetts Bay Colony was first established, you could be fined five shillings for exuberating the Christmas spirit in this country? It used to be illegal. Right? Merry Christmas. Here's your ticket. Okay? We don't want to go down that road. Well, why not just preach on the incarnation and keep all of this to myself? That would be easy, wouldn't it? Yeah, I, I admit to you, it would be very easy for me to do, and I wish I could do that. But my conscience will not let me. My conscience gives me two options. Ignore the day entirely, which I just explained to you why I'm not doing, and secondly... Preach on the doctrine of the Incarnation, but preach on it with these qualifications. And I have confidence that I serve a church that will love me as their pastor when I don't celebrate Christmas because they know I love them when they do celebrate Christmas. And now that I have cleared my conscience before God and before you, I can spend the remainder of my time considering the doctrine of the Incarnation from Isaiah chapter 9. So let me read to you the first seven verses of Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9, beginning in verse 1, these are the words of God. Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation, when at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward did more grievously afflict her by the way of the sea beyond Jordan in Galilee of the nations. The people that walked in darkness have seen a great light, They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. They joy before thee according to the joy in harvest, and as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. 
For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the day of Midian. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and the garments rolled in blood. But this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. The book of Isaiah has been appropriately titled by some as the gospel according to Isaiah. He truly is the evangelical prophet. Uh, This chapter contains a prophecy about the coming of our Lord that was written over 700 years before he was to be born. Certainly the Old Testament contains no greater prophecy than the foretelling of the coming Messiah. In fact, all of the Old Testament pointed to that one central event and the New Testament dawns with the birth of the promised one. This birth was designed by the Father, foretold by the prophets, conceived by the Holy Ghost, witnessed by the angels, and preached by the apostles. History itself pivots around this birth. We are keeping time by this birth. Uh, Everything before this birth we call the time before Christ. And everything after this birth we call the time Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. As we should expect... Isaiah prophesies the coming of Christ in historical and prophetical language, and poetical language. And in so doing, he announces the results of Christ's coming before he announces the coming itself. He gives us the cause before the, or he gives us the effects before he gives us the cause. In the first five verses, Isaiah tells us what happens in the world, in the covenant people of God, and in the hearts of each individual believer as a result of Christ's coming into the world. Most preachers who deal with the incarnation in Isaiah 9, they they make a beeline for verses 6 and 7. There are some glorious truths, brothers and sisters, in verses 1 through 5 that we ought not so quickly skip over. And so this morning, I I want us to look at verses 1 through 5, and hopefully we'll get into a little bit of verse 6. And then next week, we'll we'll make that beeline to verses 6 and 7. And the first thing that I want you to see, the first heading, is the consequences of the Son. The consequences of the Son. Notice how the prophet begins. He says, Nevertheless, the dimness shall not be such as was in her vexation." When at the first he lightly afflicted the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali or Naphtali. The nevertheless tells us that the prophet is building on the immediately preceding thought. Isaiah 9 picks up where Isaiah 8 left off. Look at verses 21 and 22 of chapter 8. Isaiah says, And they shall pass through it, hardly bestead and hungry. And it shall come to pass, when they shall be hungry, they shall fret themselves and curse their king and their God and look upward and they shall look unto the earth and behold trouble and darkness dimness of anguish and they shall be driven 
to darkness. This is the context in which Isaiah is writing this prophecy. He is on the the precipice of this vexation. This vexation likely refers to what is recorded in 2 Kings 15 and verse 29 when the land of Naphtali was carried away into Assyrian captivity. This was a horrible and devastating time for the nation of Israel. And Isaiah is comparing the condition of Israel as they're going into captivity with the glories that shall come to pass in the times of the Messiah. Hermeneutically, you must understand, this is one of the difficulties in interpreting the prophets. It's what some will call the the mountain peak uh, syndrome or the, the mountain peak effect. When you're reading the prophets, oftentimes they will prophesy two different events or they will speak from one vantage point to another vantage point. And as you're reading it, it will seem as if it's something that's going to immediately come to pass. It's kind of like if you're standing on a very tall mountain peak and you're in a mountain range and you look out, it looks as if the next mountain peak is just a, a stone's throw away. But that you don't realize, because you're on top of the mountain, you don't realize that there's a valley that spans miles and miles and miles in between the two mountain peaks. And the same thing is true of the prophets. It's why the Jews didn't understand many of the prophecies pertaining to the first coming of Christ. Because the prophets would prophesy something that pertained to his first coming and his second coming, and we wouldn't see this whole inter-period that we are living in right now contained in the prophecy. So Isaiah is prophesying about something that will come to pass when Messiah comes, and he's comparing it to their context then. To say that the dimness shall not be as such when the Messiah comes presupposes that before Christ the whole world was consumed in darkness. This was certainly true of the nation of Israel. He goes on to say, afterward he did more grievously afflict her. Probably a reference, likely a reference to the oppressions of the Roman Empire. Remember when Christ came, Israel was under the the dominion of the Roman Empire, which arguably was worse than Assyrian captivity. But not only is this true of the nation of Israel, this is also true of every man and woman prior to their conversion. If the Messiah has not come into your heart with grace and power unto salvation, you are yet living in darkness. Here in Isaiah, we find hope that though the darkness and corruption of this world is great, we, the people of God, have a sure remedy for this darkness. What are the consequences of the Son of God coming into the world? Well, there's three of them in the text before us. The first one is this. The Son of God brings with Him a glorious illumination. Look at verse 2. The prophet says, the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. Isaiah was ministering right on the verge of the darkest hour of Israel's history. Israel had forsaken God and soon they would be carried away into captivity. And even after partially returning to the land, they would never again find spiritual prosperity. And after the ministry of the prophet Malachi, God did not speak to Israel for 400 years. 
hundred years. No word from God, no revival, no miraculous moves of the Almighty, just darkness. And the prophet Isaiah says in verse 2 that the people that walked in darkness have seen a great light. This was the cause of the Son of God coming into the world. Matthew records the fulfillment of this prophecy in Matthew chapter 4 and verses 12 through 17. Matthew says, Now when Jesus had heard that John was cast into prison, he departed into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is upon the sea coasts, the border of Zebulun and the borders of Naphtali that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zabulon and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. Amen. And to them which sat in the region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But beloved, it's not only true of Israel. It's not only true that Jesus came and he ministered in the very region, in the very city that, that Isaiah is speaking of in his prophecy, but this is true of each and every one of you as well. When you were without Christ, you walked in darkness. Your condition was so dark you are unable to see the truth of God. You are unable to behold the glory of God. And were it not for this great light, you would still be lost and dead in your sins today. Isaiah goes on to say in verse 2, They that dwell in the land of the shadow of death, upon them hath the light shined. He tells us upon whom this light comes. This was you before God saved you. You lived in the shadow of death. You had no spiritual life within you. You were not a pretty good person trying to find your way. You were not making a good effort and just needed a little bit of help to get there. Your heart was dark and cold to the things of God. You couldn't come to God. You had no desire to come to God. You were dead and bound up in your sinful grave clothes, living in a tomb of iniquity and evil. And dead men don't love God. They just stink. And that's what you did. You stunk. Your sins were a putrid smell in the nostrils of God. That's what you did before this great light shined into your heart. Oh, but thanks be to God that he did not leave you groping in the darkness with no hope of salvation. God fulfilled his promise and he shined this great light in you. This great light that has shined has been shown in your hearts if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. This light has illuminated your sins and it's made you see your miserable sinful condition. But more than that, this light has, been, has made you aware of the Savior. The ultimate beam of this great spotlight is upon the Lord Jesus Christ 
who saves you from this great darkness and redeems you from your sins and leads you to follow him in the light. Jesus said in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. And so I ask you, is Jesus the light of your world? Or are you still living in darkness? Some of you, you, you need to, to have this light shine into your heart. Some of you have seen this light and you are, you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, but, but you are backsliding away from him and you are allowing carnality to bring darkness back into your heart. And you need to repent. And you need to, to open your heart and you need to lay it bare to this light. And you need to let it shine in every corner of your soul. The light can be a painful thing. When you shine the light into darkness, the roaches run. But that's what you need for your besetting sins, for your struggles, for your carnality, for your lukewarmness. You need this great light to shine into your heart and set you ablaze for the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank God that this great light that first shined 2,000 years ago is still shining today every time the gospel is preached. This light is not like all the flashlights in my home. I have 34 flashlights and don't have batteries in any one of them. They're all dead. And instead of buying batteries, I'd go out and buy a new flashlight. Well, this, not, this light is not that way. This light doesn't lose its, its brightness. And if you're standing on the peripherals of this light and you're beginning to see something of your own depravity and your need for salvation, then I urge you to, to embrace this light. Go towards this light. Step all the way into it. Jesus alone can save you from your darkness. That's true of sinner and that's true of saint. Secondly, the consequences of the sun. Secondly, not only this glorious illumination, but secondly, we see in Isaiah 9, verse 3, a glorious increase. Notice he says, Thou hast multiplied the nation. Back in Genesis 17.5, God promised to make Abraham the father of a multitude of nations. This promise was fulfilled in the coming of Christ, the promised seed. The increase of this nation is not accomplished ethnically through physical reproduction. Rather, this increase takes place as God multiplies the nation of Israel into the New Testament church. Paul says in Galatians 3.29, If you are Christ, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The true Israel of God, the actual descendants of Abraham, the recipients of this glorious increase are all those Jew and Gentile that have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the coming of the Son, the kingdom of God and the nation that made up the covenant people is no longer confined to ethnic descendants of Israel. But it has spread abroad across the whole earth and Peter says that you are a holy generation, a royal nation. Then he says this interesting phrase in verse 3. 
Thou hast multiplied the nation and not increased the joy. Now, Isaiah 9 contains a few textual variants, and verse 3 is one of those places. If you're reading a King James, you'll see that verse 3 reads, not increased the joy, but virtually every other translation reads, has increased the joy. This is because of a variant between the Masoretic text and the Septuagint. Now, you might think at first glance as you're reading this, well, because those readings are opposite of one another, that depending on which reading you take, the text will be drastically altered. However, as is the case with most textual variants, uh, that's not true. Let me first give you the interpretation of what Isaiah is saying in verse 3, then I'm going to show you how both of these variants harmonize with the meaning of the text. And I actually understand how the, this variant was able to creep into the manuscript tradition. See, in verse 3, the prophet is foretelling the glorious increase of the covenant people of God that will be ultimately fulfilled in the New Testament church. The New Testament church has new covenant worship. The joy and gladness and relishing of the truth and worship of the church is not like the joy of Israel under the old covenant. The joy of the New Testament church is far more glorious because the Messiah has come and we worship him in spirit and truth with greater clarity than believers under the old covenant. So there is a sense in which the nation has multiplied, the nation of faith has multiplied, but the joy of the old covenant has not increased. It has been replaced and it has been superseded by a distinctly new covenant joy that can only be possessed by believers living on this side of Calvary. There's also a sense in which the joy of this nation has increased. Uh, Though it be a different kind of joy, it nevertheless is joy of a greater degree. So whichever variant the translation in your lap takes, understand that it's getting to the overarching truth in one of two directions. And that is, the nation of faith has increased. We have a distinctly new covenant joy that has increased. And joy under the old covenant has not increased. He goes on to describe this joy and how it is played out. He says in verse 3, They joy before thee. This joy is manifested in the presence of God. We don't increase ourselves. You don't save yourself. The church doesn't build itself. God is the one who does these things. Therefore, we rejoice in him and before him. That's what our worship is. It is a rejoicing before the Lord. How do we do this? Well, we do it according to the joy in harvest. He likens this joy to farmers when they reap a harvest. And secondly, we joy as they that divide the spoil. Warriors, when they divide the spoils after defeating the enemy. That is what this joy is likened unto. The joy of the Lord that comes with the incarnate Son of God meets all of our needs and vanquishes all of our foes. And we rejoice. I hope you're rejoicing. Regardless of how you view December 25th, you ought to rejoice in the coming of the Son of God. For He has met all of your needs and He has defeated your foes. Thirdly, third consequence of the 
the coming of the Son is a glorious liberty. A glorious liberty. Look at verses 4 and 5. For thou hast broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor as in the days of Midian. Oh, what a glorious description of the redeeming work of Christ. Apart from Christ, you must understand that you were imprisoned to your sins and the enemy, he he had you in bondage. You were a slave to carnality, a slave to evil, and you had no hope of ever freeing yourself. But God saw your doomed condition and it pleased him to send his son into the world to liberate you and save you from your sins. Jesus Christ, by his sinless life and by his sacrificial death, has broken the yoke of your burden. He has removed the staff from your shoulder. He has snapped the rod of your oppressor. He has defeated Satan. He has defeated your flesh. He has defeated sin. He has defeated the curse of the law. He has defeated death itself. He has conquered all of his enemies. He has divided the spoils amongst his people, and we who receive them rejoice. This is the message of the Incarnation. This mighty and powerful God who has come into this world, born of a virgin, to conquer and to rule through the power of his spirit. And I feel that this message of the incarnation is oftentimes lost in our sentimentalities and our trifling. I've said enough in this sermon to get me in trouble, so why stop now? I'm not a fan of nativity scenes. Aside from the fact that they're a visible description of deity, which God forbids us from attempting to make in his word, they cause us to be enamored with this helpless babe in a manger, this cute little baby Jesus. And every year we like to think about how precious and cute sweet little baby Jesus is. You know why the world loves sweet little baby Jesus? Because sweet little baby Jesus is powerless. He's a babe in a manger. And we can go to him and we can look at him and we can feel all warm and fuzzy inside. And our sin and our depravity is not threatened whatsoever. A babe in a manger doesn't conquer enemies and overthrow Satan. A babe in a manger doesn't judge sinners who will not repent. A babe in a manger doesn't break yokes and snap rods. But I declare to you that this babe in a manger was the incarnation of Almighty God. And he did not remain a babe in a manger. He grew up and he became a man, the God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And he fulfilled the curse of the law. And he went to the cross of Calvary. And he spoiled the devil and all of his demons with his own blood that he shed for you. And he's not laying in a manger anymore. And he's not on a cross anymore. So why do we depict him that way? Because we want him either a helpless babe in a manger, or we want him to be a Jew still nailed to the cross. And we don't want to come to the reality that he's the King of kings, and the Lord of lords, and he's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We don't want to come into the reality of that Jesus. Because that Jesus will break the rods of his enemies, and if you are his enemy, he will break you.
the omnipotent one, the all-powerful one, the God who conquers his enemies and liberates his people. As he laid in that manger, he simultaneously held together every atom in the universe. He had to come by way of a manger. What a condescension it was that he entered. Not only did he enter human flesh, but he did enter the form of a helpless babe. But not to remain that way. Not to remain that way. Look how verse 5 describes the glorious liberty wrought by the Lord Jesus Christ. For every battle of the warrior is with confused noise and his garments rolled in blood, but this shall be with burning and fuel of fire. Does that sound to you like the works of a helpless, sweet little baby in a manger? It's the God who conquers his enemies and who takes their bloodied garments and throws them in the fire. Jesus did not come to be gawked at. He came as a baby to confound the principalities and powers of this world and to become a person that was truly God and truly man in order that he might once and for all defeat his enemies and liberate his people. Again, I'm not trying to preach to you about decorations. I'm trying to preach to you about the fullness of the person of Christ. I want you to have a full-orbed understanding of who he is as the God-man. I don't intend to needlessly be offensive. But so much of our Americanized Christianity is entirely wrong. If you understand who that baby was, you won't goo and ga over the nativity scene and buy tickets to go down to the live nativity scene because some pastor that never read his Bible got his baby to Dress up like the Son of God. You'll bow down at the overwhelming power of the Godhead. Think about the truths of what you're singing when you sing songs like, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary soul rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angel voices. Oh, night divine. Oh, night when Christ was born. If you read the classic book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, he recounts in his chapter on the insanity of Luther when Luther tried to perform his first Mass. And Luther stood up, and as he was supposed to announce and pray the prayer of convocation, he couldn't get the words out. He faltered, and he embarrassed himself, and he embarrassed his family. And when he was later asked, what happened? Why did you choke? He said, I stood there, thinking about the reality that I was about to pray to the Almighty God, and then I felt the weight of my sin and my iniquity and my evil and my, my sinful heart, and I couldn't bear the thought of speaking to him. And yet we will wear sweaters with sweet little baby Jesus' face on it. I don't think it's funny at all. May God help us to see him for who he is. 
By sending his son in the world, God is moving his people from darkness to light, from gloom to glory, from misery to joy, from bondage to liberty. And now as we approach verse 6, we see the cause for all of these things. So the consequences of the son. Secondly, verse 6, we'll just briefly get into it. The coming of the son. The coming of the son in verse 6. He begins by saying, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Time will not permit me to, to do justice to this verse, so let me make one initial observation, and next week we'll pick up with an exposition of verses 6 and 7. Some will criticize this interpretation of Isaiah 9, and they will accuse me of spiritualizing this passage at the expense of its literal meaning. They say, well, this prophecy is not about the future glories of the church. It's about the restoration of Israel after their captivity. Well, firstly, I don't deny that this prophecy does have partial fulfillment in the Old Testament nation of Israel, and yet still will have partial fulfillment in ethnic Israel. But here's why I believe that it's not wrong to preach this as as distinctly referring to the glories of the new covenant church. Because Isaiah, in verses 1 through 5, what does he do? He tells us about all these glorious blessings. And then in verse 6, he tells us the ultimate cause for them. And he doesn't cite Israel's return from captivity. He cites the birth of Christ. Why will there be a great light? Why will there be this this liberty, this conquering of enemies, this glorious increase? Why, Isaiah? Because unto us a child is born. He is the reason for all of these things. He is the reason for this great hope. Isaiah knew a lot more about this prophecy than many commentators give him credit for. He knew And he was speaking about the time that would come to pass when God in the fullness of times would send his son into the world and we would have this glorious, wonderful advent of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that has taken place 2,000 years ago and we today live in these glories. You say, well, pastor, the times we're living in right now don't seem too glorious. Well, let me ask you, is the light of the gospel still going forth in the world? Is God still saving sinners? Is Christ still building his church? If so, then I say to you lovingly but boldly, get your eyes off of the world and focus your vision on God incarnate. Now that we've laid the foundation for this this theme of the incarnation, this doctrine of the incarnation, I look forward to spending all of next Lord's Day expositing and relishing in this great truth. And it is a great truth. See, my issue with much of the way the world observes December 25th is not because I, I have something against the doctrine of the Incarnation, but because I think much of it does a disservice to the doctrine of the Incarnation. And I know that this is a very different Advent sermon than many of you are used to. Uh, Some of you have been Christians for a long while, and this is the first time you've ever heard anything like this. I understand that. And I hope that you hear the voice, not of someone who wants to cause contention or anger or prove a point, but a pastor who really wants to be faithful to the truth and wants to love God and love his people while doing it. 
I don't expect that I've changed anyone's mind about this issue. And my goal is not to necessarily change your mind. My goal is for you to have a position that's based on the Bible and for you to have a clear conscience about it. That's my goal. And I want our church to follow the word of God without wavering to the left hand or to the right. But I do hope that I've presented some things for you to consider. I trust that as you think on these things, you will not proudly cling to traditions and sentimental emotions, but that you will humble yourself and allow the Spirit of God to take the word and bring you into conformity with revealed truth. For some of you, the observance of Christmas is the last thing you need to be considering. Because you, you need to first just consider this great light. Whether you do or don't celebrate Christmas is irrelevant to the state of your soul. But whether you have this light shining in your heart is the difference between going to heaven when you die and going to hell. So I ask all of you, has this great light shined in your heart? Has your soul been given a glorious increase of joy in the Lord because of the coming of the Son of God? Have you been liberated from your sin? If so, whether you want to do it next Sunday or every day or call it whatever you want to, rejoice. Rejoice that the Son of God has come into the world to save you. And this light is still shining today for all who would come, repent of their sin, and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So come, receive Christ today. Father, we thank you, Jesus' name, for your goodness. And I pray, oh God, I pray, pray that I have had a heart of true compassion. Father, you know my desire is just to please you. And I don't want to violate my own conscience, even if that means seeming odd in the context in the day and age in which we live. I want to be faithful to your word. And I don't believe I'm going to get to heaven and hear you say, your problem was just that you cared too much about what the Bible taught. Oh God, may you save us from the fear of public opinion, which I confess I am all too afraid of. May you give us a boldness to faithfully stand on the precepts of your word in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.